encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this letter, this was written to a community of Hebrew Christians who they had great initial attraction to Jesus. It's like they were just coming off retreat. They loved God. They were walking together, but um, their faith was now in danger of eroding. And some of us have been there, right? You, you had this passion for Christ, but slowly things start to erode. And some of this, a lot of it was due to great persecution they were experiencing. It was not easy for them to follow Christ. Um, and what they were doing in response, because they were Hebrew heritage, they were considering a return to the Old Testament priestly sacrificial systems. That's why so much of Hebrews, if you read it, and it's all open source, go read it, it's good for you. Um, it talks so much about Jesus as the great high priest, because the author's trying to show them, no, Jesus is now the true high priest. You don't have to go back to that old priestly system. But still, their struggle was real to the point where many of them, they even started to fall away and to even stop gathering together. So when we read the exhortation here, the challenge to not give up meeting together, this is not some lukewarm, touchy-feely sentiment, or this is not, I mean, preachers, we're guilt so guilty if attendance is starting to dip a little bit at church on Sundays. We pull these verses out. Let us not neglect meeting one another as some are in hell. You should come to church. It, I, I mean, it's not that. It's so much more than that. This is spiritual survival. This is very much their spiritual survival that in the midst of great challenge, in the midst of things that are slamming them in their testing of their faith, they especially needed one another if they had any chance of making it. This is not just saying, oh, it's just so much better if you've got other people. No, just say, if you're going to make it, you need one another. And, and I'll, I'll say this. Some people, and they got real good theology, they start to get a little nervous if they say you need anything other than Jesus. I want to make clear here, I'm a sola Christa, all that sola stuff. I believe Jesus is enough. Amen? Y'all believe that? Jesus is enough. I'm not a heretic, but I believe to truly know the full graces of God as he's provided through the work alone of Christ, we need one another to fully live that out. That's what I'm saying. Because some people are like, yeah, community, oh, that's fine, but just give me my Bible in a room and I'm good. No, actually, I'm going to say you're not. You can't live out what the Bible tells you to be. And because I think that's revealing a very individualistic mindset towards faith because the reality is we were always created to live and to grow and to thrive in community. And I'm going to say this. We've got this weird mentality, and we might not even voice it, but sometimes we think, you know what? If you need other people, you're actually kind of spiritually immature. There's something lacking in your faith. Like if you can't do quiet times every day and pray for two hours in the morning by yourself and then you go be with other people, but if you need other people, somehow that's a weakness in your faith, you're immature. I'm going to actually suggest thinking that you don't need community is spiritual immaturity. Thinking that, no, I'm good. I don't need anyone else to pray me and the Trinity. We're good. If, if that's your mentality, you are actually probably revealing some spiritual immaturity. It's not a sign of inner strength but it's saying that we will not grow spiritually as God has intended us to. So on that theme, I want to look at a few different passages in some different ways, uh, how a compassionate Christ-like community, it leads to a deeper communion with Jesus. So first, uh, let's look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, starting verse 12. Hebrews 3, verse 12, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, 
leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So in verse 12 there, I don't think it's talking about losing your salvation. I don't think it's talking about you losing your salvation, but I think it's speaking more about a gradual process, a hardening, a gradual process. Like hardened means it didn't happen right away, but it happened over a process of time, and maybe you didn't even realize it. So some of y'all remember, because uh, East Coast Virginia is not that far away from uh, where I'm at. We had those like, huge snowstorms a couple years ago, like the mega storms. And in Baltimore, I remember that one storm, I think you guys hit the same thing. We had the greatest one-day snowfall in Baltimore history. I think it was like 29.2 inches. You remember that huge storm, right? That mega storm. And in our neighborhood, it's a little bit older. So there was this one block of row houses in Baltimore, a big row house neighbor, uh, neighborhood. There were four houses with the porches. Because of that weight of that snow, 29 inches, those John all collapsed. And because they're connected to one another, all those porches went down. It was just crazy, epic. And, and I remember talking to someone. They're like, yeah, man, did you see the, the snow that brought those porches down? I'm like, yeah. They're like, man, it's crazy that the snow would make that happen. I'm like, well, you know that blizzard didn't cause that. They're like, what? Of course it did. No, I'm, I'm like, you know that blizzard didn't make that happen. They're like, are you high? What are you talking about? Of course it made that happen. It was 29 inches of snow. How heavy that was. Of course it made that Oh, well, it was the last the last straw, but if you drive around with me for years now, I've looked at that on, on days when there's no snow. I said, ooh, that doesn't look good. <laughs> oh, some termites been in that or something, or, or, or well, water damage has been eroding that slowly. Oh, that doesn't look that healthy. It won't take that much for something to happen, and boom, it did take a giant, giant blizzard, but that was ready to come down for years. In the same way, I think that's similar to how sin works in our lives. Um, I have not met too many people, and I'm sure there's some. I haven't met too many, though, personally, who are deeply, sincerely, passionately following Jesus on a Sunday. Like, they are fully all there, and then suddenly wake up on Monday saying, I'm, I'm done. Nope, forget this. Can't do it. Nope, I don't believe this. Um, usually, if that happens, it's not like a one-day thing, but it's a series of disappointments. It's like a continual series of frustrations, maybe unanswered questions that have been building up, maybe things that deep inside that no one knows about that's just been kind of gradually building to the point where it's unbearable. And that leads to the hardening of a heart. Hardening of a heart usually doesn't happen overnight, but it's this process that takes a while. And this is a part of the journey. And it's why we talk about faith. But I think where that hardening process can be really damaging to us in the church is when you're really isolated. And it's happening, but no one knows it's happening to you because we all know how to come to church and look good, right? And I don't just mean like look like buff, but like we know how to put on the Christianese. We know how to say the right things. We know how to look like we've got it going on even though maybe inside we are being crushed and the hardening has been happening for a while. We know the right things to say so that you don't have that sudden meeting with the pastor. You know that time when like, you know, people can tell something's wrong and you get that email, hey, let's get together for some coffee. You're like, man, they found me out. <laughs> yeah, was I that obvious? Like, a lot of times we keep it inside though and there's that hardening process. But the whole time we're saying, 
man, I don't know how much longer I can pull this off. I don't know how much longer I can do this. So as sin wears away our souls, as we are hardened by sin, and this, the warning here is because it happens to all of us. If you find it happening to you, don't think you're an anomaly, like you're some freak. It happens to every single one of us. The way that we combat it is we walk with women and men in a way that they recognize you, in a way that they know you. Uh, they, they know that you need to be encouraged, or maybe you need to be lovingly rebuked, but they know you enough to speak into your life. Because here's the thing, if we don't have those honest voices that can speak into our life, we will eventually become overwhelmed by the deceitfulness of sin. It just happens to all of us. Because sin, it deceives us into believing that we have things together when we really don't. That's what sin does. Sin is, it, it's, it's sneaky. It can make you feel like, no, you're all good. You got at least one more month of good sinning before it really goes over the edge. You're good. Like we can be deceived into our condition that we're good when we're really not. And you need some real people to recognize that. People who know you enough when they see you at small group or they see you on Sunday or they see you at Avengers. They look at you and say, hey, how are things going? You're like, oh, great. And they know you're like, no, really, what's going on? <laughs> Something's not right there because they know you. And I would suggest that a mark of this redeemed community is having some people in life who are not so impressed by you. What I mean by that, and a professor in a seminary back a long time ago, he said that find some people who are not that easily impressed by you and get real close to them. Because we all love the people on Facebook, on Twitter. When you put up something, like they're liking it right away. And you know they didn't even read it because you put it up like a second ago and they just like it. They like, they like everything you do. They clap whenever you come into the room. They're so happy to see. We love those people. I love those people. They're some of my favorite people. But they're not often the most helpful people for my spiritual journey. It's the people who are not that impressed by me. And, and they're not impressed enough because they'll say real stuff that I need to hear. Because they, they love me too much. And their goal is not to just make me feel gooey inside and all happy about that. They're, they love me so much they'll even risk kind of being the bad guy to say some things into my life. They're full of grace and kindness, though. They're, I mean, some people love to speak truth in other people's life, and they're a jerk. We don't need more of those. <laughs> Y'all encountered them. Maybe you with them, right? Like, some people love, but it's always done with grace and kindness that they, as, you, as they call you to repent, they're like, you can tell they're almost about to cry as they do that because it hurts their heart so much. That they'll speak truth and love to one another, not because they're trying to shame you. And we got way too much of that as well. People who love to shame, not to shame you, but precisely because they love God so much that they love you and they have compassion for you. But this is why it's so important that people know you because sometimes we've all been there. Sometimes you need someone who knows you so well, they realize it's not a kick in the butt you need, but it's like just a giant hug that just sits there for a while. Like they know you enough when sometimes you're like crushed to the ground already and you need someone who's just there saying, hey, I got no answers, but you're not in this alone. I'm with you. I'm there on the ground with you. We need to be known. We need to be known to combat this hardening of the heart that happens from sin and brokenness in our lives. We, we also have another thing in James chapter 5. James 5 verse 16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And I think whenever we hear about confession and a church, some of us get a little bit nervous, especially maybe uh, depending on your background with the Catholic Church. I think because of sometimes a response to some practices that, that we would say are probably not the most biblical within the Catholic Church tradition, I think sometimes we bristle at anything associated with that church. But, but one practice I think that's worth considering is this one of confession. And I don't mean you need to go into a box with someone and confess, but the general idea of confessing. Because we're so good about knowing God alone for, can forgive. Amen. No one can forgive your sins other than God. But because of that, we've kind of isolated this idea, of, as James writes, about confessing your sins to one another. That it's a healthy practice. Again, I want to make really clear, you do not need your sins forgiven by another person. Whether they are a pastor, whether they're a leader, that doesn't make your sins more forgiven. God forgives, but there is power in being able to trust another person with the darkest parts of your soul. Because and one a good friend of mine, he likes to say, um, sometimes our psychology has not caught up with our theology. Or maybe the other way, our theology is not quite as strong as psychology. What that means is, theologically, we know God sees everything. God knows. And you've been to those retreats, right? God knows the deepest parts of your heart right now, and he loves you. And you're like, really? Oh, that's great. We know that, but psychologically, we don't fully believe it. You know how? Because we're still trying to hide from everyone else. Even though God knows, it's not quite met with how we truly view life. But when it says in the passage, confess your sins and pray for one another that you may be healed, I believe that one aspect of this healing is the removal of the weight of sin and shame from our shoulders that we might still carry even if we have a very doctrinally sound understanding that Christ has taken away all our sins. We can know that as truth, and we're not denying that. We embrace it. We hold it fast. That's one of the reasons we can sing these songs with such gusto, that though he knew all my sins, he's forgiven me. That that sacrifice on the cross and the crushing of death and sin in rising from the grave, whoa, it took care of it all. Praise God. But we can still live in the darkness of the shadow of carrying that sin. And sometimes being able to share and confess with one another, it's a process by which God teaches you, this is not you any longer. Be forgiven. Be cleansed. Live into forgiveness Christ has purchased for you. And this has been um, a real long, painful at times journey for me personally. Um, I don't know about y'all, but for me, I really struggle with appearance. And especially as a pastor, I want to look like I got it all together. I want to be like when Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Like, I want that to be perfect. Like, I know Jesus is not here anymore, but when you look at me, you're getting a pretty good indicator. I like, I would love that. <laughs> like, that's just my flesh talking, right? I, I want to be like that impressive appearance is like, oh, man. Like, are, is our four members of the Trinity including you? I mean, like, like I, I would love that. But God has reminded me that part of my growth, if I really want to grow, is being honest with the darker parts of my soul. And that the shame attached with it is often what keeps me from fully and, uh, embracing what God has already purchased for me through Christ. 
I remember one kind of painful memory, but it's been one of the more memorable kind of ways I've remembered God's working in my life. Early on in my marriage, you know, things were good. They were pretty good. My wife, my, I, you know, I've been blessed with an amazing wife. Judy is just unbelievable. I'm, I'm, I feel bad she couldn't be here because uh, she's at work. Um, but I remember, uh, I remember it was a Sunday, and I just had a great Sunday. I think I preached that day. It was just one of those days where you just feel like God is so real. God's so powerful. It's awesome. I was sky high. I came home. And if you're married, you know this. Look, you come home, and you look at your spouse's face. You're like, okay, I did something here, but I'm not quite sure what I did. And you tread lightly because you're, hmm, someone's not happy. Mama's not happy. And I was like, hey, what's wrong? She's like, hmm. Uh, I was looking at your computer um, this morning, and I found some things I don't think should have been on there. I was like, oh, I didn't clear those. Wow. I'm usually so good at hiding my steps. Wow. I got outed. And I had to, I mean, she was ticked. She was really ticked to the, like, and we were, you know, young married couple at the time. We didn't have a big house. We had like one small apartment, so there's nowhere to escape. So it's really awkward for like two days. No talking kind of thing. She was mad, real mad. And eventually it got to a point though where we had a conversation. I remember her saying to me, you know, Dan, I am really, really mad at you right now. I'm even wondering what this marriage is made of. I wonder if you've been lying to me the whole time. But I, I forgive you and I'm committed to make this work because I love you. And I, I want to be really clear here. I had a real good doctrinal understanding that God saw my sin and he forgives me. I, I did. I believed that. I didn't believe I need to pray harder for God. I believed in Christ alone, he's taken away the stain of that sin, but I still carried it because it was a very secret, private thing. But being able to have another person as, as scary and as painful and embarrassing and shameful as I felt... It was unbelievable the weight that was lifted from my shoulder to realize this is not just with me anymore. Someone else knows this now, and they've forgiven me, and they love me, and they choose to be with me, even though they know some of the most shameful things in my life. And I would say that's been actually a big part of even my growth in these ways, not to feel like I've got to hide anymore, be open about sin, hate sin actually that much more because I see the effects of it but let God open that up and receive his forgiveness freely and his grace through another one of his children. The ways we really, really receive grace and forgiveness, it moves from just theology to practice is when we start to receive that from one another as well. Because when we're known enough that we can be honest in confession and we forgive one another, we receive one another, we preach the gospel to one another in that fact. We often talk about preaching the gospel as like pull out a little tract and talk about how you, and that's true. That's part of it. But I would suggest one of the best ways we receive the gospel is we learn from one another what does it mean that someone knows even the worst things about you and they love you because that's what God does. And we get to practice that with one another. One of the hard things about church though is often it's the opposite. Man, so many of our church cultures, it's almost like the opposite of it. Yeah, God knows, and God accepts, and God forgives. Oh, but God forbid anyone else in here knows, because how could I stand? We need to be a community. This church needs to be a community where it's okay to not be okay. And, of course, we understand the gospel. It doesn't mean that once we know we're not okay, that, oh, yeah, woo! 
church go wild, let's go nuts. No, no, that's not what we're saying. We're saying actually that's going to help us to hate our sin even more and grow in righteousness even more when we get out of the darkness of sin and shame. But we help one another do that. That's something you cannot do by yourself. You just can't do that by yourself. You need one another. Let's move on to another passage here about being known. Acts chapter 9, starting verse 26. And this is talking about the Apostle Paul. It says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And we all know Paul, right? Like, greatest missionary in the New Testament. But this is one of the most key passages that allowed Paul to be all that he was meant to be before he was the great missionary Paul. And Barnabas, our man Barney, he doesn't get enough credit, right? Everyone knows Paul, not enough know Barnabas. I think Barnabas was actually one of the most key people used by God, even under the cover. Because you, you see it right here, Paul, as he was Saul, he experienced this dramatic, ooh, this dramatic conversion on the road, went blind. He heard from Jesus very clearly, and he was saved, transformed, scales fell from the eyes, and he was given the call to preach the gospel, and he was convicted of it. He was convinced of that call, and everyone else hears it, and they're like, oh, you, you mean that crazy terrorist guy that used to be hunting us down? That really smart guy, because everyone knew he's smart, that really smart... Um, you, you, you know that he could be real smart, and this is like a sleeper, spell oper- sleeper cell operation right now, right? Like he all pretending to be, hey, Jesus, homies, and like he's just trying to get in here, and he's just going to kill us all. Seriously? Seriously? I, I've had brothers who were taken away by this cat. I've had friends who were arrested and killed because of this guy. Seriously? You're going to take it as word. And because of the community and love of this man, Barnabas, who stood up for him and vouched for him and said, no, he's changed. He's real. This is real. He was able to help Paul escape his condemnation. Because imagine how Paul felt. Some of us who've had histories of sin in our life, and maybe you're way past it, right? But then you hear those verses like, uh, that say, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and you love it, but you also quite don't believe it because you feel like you're still haunted by your past. You can be sitting at retreat, and you're singing the songs, and you're, you're praying, but then there's still that haunting voice. Who are you trying to fool? You know who you still are. You know what you do. You know what you've done. You know what you still do. You know what's in your mind? A holy moly act. And what if the people here found out who you really were? And we live in condemnation. For me, what condemnation used to look like when I first started doing pastoral ministry and preaching and stuff, I I had a little bit of a history. I used to get in a lot of fights, had different experiences, some not so great experiences with the opposite sex. 
and my condemnation would look like I'm preaching one day, like say on a Sunday or a Friday night, I'm going in, I'm passionate, and then someone walks in from the back, and it's someone I had beat up in the past. Or it's a young lady who I did not treat honorably. That's what condemnation used to look like for me, haunted by my past, haunted by the things I've done. But what no condemnation means is that does not define you any longer. That's not you anymore because of what Jesus is. Jesus stands in your place. God the Father looks at the perfect life of Jesus that stands in your place. But what happens in community? Your community are the ones that can often help you to escape the condemnation of even your past. A a compassionate community, a redeemed community, can help one another to be not trapped in the past, but set free by the grace of Christ to be all that we were intended to be. And one one great example I see in our church back at the village is um, one of our key leaders now, his name's Rob, and he's just, he's one of my heroes, and and his life's not easy, but he used to be uh, one of the biggest uh, drug dealers, drug runners in our our city, in our neighborhood, just as, and like, you didn't mess with him, like a really bad dude, used to pimp out women, like, just a real dramatic story, but then Christ saved his life, he, he, he's like, grown like crazy at our church, and now he actually leads our ministries of redemption within the neighborhood. It's, it's pretty amazing. But the thing is, when he first started, uh, started doing some of the ministry, he would say, Pastor, I, I can't get up in front of people because I feel they're all just looking at me. They all think I'm, I'm still that same guy. Everyone from the neighborhood thinks I'm pulling another con. People won't trust me. They know what I've done. They've seen who I am. They think I'm trying to pull another uh, scam here. But one of the things that's helped Rob to be all that he can be is when other people in our church come around him and tell him, man, I can't believe what God is doing in your life. This is amazing. You inspire me so much. When I am like struggling, I look to you and I think about you and I'm encouraged to keep going. He's like, what? Because he doesn't, I, I think he has his GED, but he never went beyond that. So he, when he's preached at our church, And then he has people with like PhDs who are sitting, receiving instruction for him. It just empowers him to be all that God has intended him to be in ways that he could never imagine. And I tell the community, you are helping him. This is not just about being fluffy and make him feel it. You are enlarging the kingdom of God. You are increasing the scope of what God is doing through this man by walking behind him and saying, you are no longer those things that used to define you. You are new and clean. Now go in the name of Christ. And we do that together. We do that together. A a redeemed, renewed community. We help one another in all of our stories to not be trapped by our past, but to be all that God has intended us to be. Because this kind of community it will help to recognize the hidden gems even amongst us. Let's all be real. There's some people in church sometimes, and maybe it's you. Maybe you think about yourself that way. Oh, they'll never amount to anything. God, I hope they just come. That would be great. Man, I just hope they attend every week. Or two out of four. That'd be great. Wow. And, you know, we have to start thinking in God's eyes. See, when he looks at some people, he doesn't see what you and I see. God is already seeing what they're going to do. And they're like, oh, you got to think about the plans I have for this person. Keep loving them. Keep serving them. Keep helping them to grow. Because they're going to do things that like outpace all of us here. But community helps one another to recognize those things.
One, one more thing. Let's look at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, just one verse, uh, verse 2. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Andy, can I ask you to come up here for a second? Sorry, you're taking notes. That's so good. I, like, I'm interrupting someone taking notes. That's like evil of me. Um, so say we're faced. Say I've got this huge, or say you've got this huge load that you're holding up. Two hands. It's big. Imaginary. We've got to use our man. This huge thing. Um, if he's like starting to buckle a little bit because this is really heavy, and this just like imagine this giant thing. Um, if I'm going to help him, I don't go, okay, man, come on, Andy. You can do it. Get. The way I carry these burdens, help him to carry it, I got to get in there right under the same thing, like real close to the point where he knows what I had for breakfast. <laughs> like that close. If we're going to carry this thing together, I can't do that from apart. I got to get in close so we carry that burden together. Thank you. It, it's this idea that if we're going to bear one of those burdens, um, you got to get so close to that person, you're almost in their shoes. You got to be tied together with them if you're going to walk and carry burdens and fulfill this law of Christ. And notice here, it's not just bear others, but it's bear one another's. This is not just a one-way street, but this is a reciprocal thing. It's describing a community where you don't let others carry their loads alone, but you also don't try to carry your load alone. Some of us, again, kind of like last night, we're so strong, but it's an impediment. Like, we don't let others in because we don't want to be weak. We don't want to be that burden. We don't want to be that uh, drag on people. We don't want to hold them down with the things we're struggling with. Like, no, I'll take care of this with God. And what you're doing is you're actually depriving people of the ability to live out the law of Christ. Because we live out the law of Christ by supporting one another and letting others support us as well. But you don't get that close unless you know one another. If I don't know you and you get in that close to me, I was like, ah, no, my breakfast is for me. I don't want you to know that. You got to know one another. And maybe a common theme behind all that we've been talking about today is this need to be known, whether it's battling our sin, confession, recognizing gifts, how to serve, sharing burdens. It assumes that there's a level of depth to being known and knowing others that has to go beyond some of the superficiality that can be so common in church. We, we just got to get beyond the surface level. And, and I think there's something appealing about community that feels real. Like our church, we are really organic. And I know that word gets thrown on everywhere. It's a little better now, but we used to be so organic, we couldn't schedule things because if we scheduled things, people wouldn't come. But it would have to be like underground. People hear about it, and then they would all come. And I'm like, how do you run a church like that? It's insane. But people wanted it to not feel forced. They want it to be, I want to feel like I truly want to do this. And I think that's a strength um, that it feels real. But I think we have to be careful that if it doesn't feel like that, that somehow it's not genuine. Because when we're talking about the kind of community as, as we're talking about here today, I'm going to suggest that it requires some intentionality. Some of the things we talk about here, it's not just going to happen because we kind of like each other. It's going to require each of us taking intentional steps with one another. It's going to probably take some planning, some purpose. Because um, we've got this Hollywood mentality towards relationships and community that will just happen organically. It's like, Holy Spirit, just knit us together. We become just, and like we leave retreat. Like, oh, yeah. Um, love takes work. 
Just like any married, married couple, no love takes work. Sometimes you feel it. A lot of times you don't feel it. It takes work. And I'm going to talk more about this when we talk about cross-cultural uh, ministry later. But particularly if a church wants to be cross-cultural, it takes a lot of intentionality. Because the reality is if things are natural, you will be with the people you have the most in common with naturally. That you don't need Jesus to be with one another. But to cross some boundaries and cultural lines, you have to be intentional about it. So as we intentionally choose to be present with others, God shows us the means by which he transforms us. And we are a culture that loves self-help principles. I mean, you go to, you go to Lifeway bookstores, there's like probably a few books on deep theology, but there's like walls and walls of seven steps to the better you or how you can be the greater you tomorrow, like 24 hours kind of thing. Um, and and I, I, I think principles, they can be helpful, but guys, God didn't save us through principles. Amen? Um, he saved us through the real particular presence of flesh and blood in the form of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus didn't come and primarily give us steps to how we can be better. He didn't give us seven ways. Here's how you can become a redeemed child of God. He actually came to dwell and live amongst us. I love one of my favorite verses now, 1 John 1, 1, where uh, the apostle's writing. He says, we saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. Jesus was showing how his ministry is going to be done. It's not by throwing nice platitudes from afar, but it's by getting in there with people, getting in their life so that they can see you, touch you. Because John's experience of God's love, it was not an abstract idea, but it was a real person's presence. I mean, this is just, oh, this is like astounding news that God's eternal plan was to send his eternally begotten son who would bear the particular presence of the father's love for all the world to see. That God would show his love through the real flesh and blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Because the good news of Jesus, it's not a religious doctrine. I mean, it, it, doctrine's involved, but it's not just a religious doctrine. It's not just an idea. It's not just a set of like doctrinal beliefs or codified beliefs that we affirm intellectually. The good news of Jesus is the very real loving presence of the Trinitarian God in the person of the eternal son dwelling amongst us. Amen? It's like real. It's like he came to be with us. And, and that's how Christ saves us, right? Like if you think about our sin and death as this pit, like 12 feet down in the pit, and even some of you ballers, you're not jumping out 12 feet, right? You're down in there, and you're climbing out, and it's just getting muddier and dirtier because you, you're trying to get yourself out, and you're just getting more of a mess. You're getting deeper into that. Jesus doesn't throw you some ideas like, hey, you ever think of like a line? Or, hey, why don't you do some more push-ups and get a little... What does he do? He gets down into our pit. How does he get into our pit? He goes on this thing called a cross. He gets into our sin. He becomes sin itself and takes it upon himself. And it's messy and it's dirty. But that's the way Christ saves us. Not from afar giving us good ideas, showing us how to do it yourself, but by getting in there and wrapping his arms around us when we had no other choice but to drown. And guys... This is why our relationships with one another are so critical. Because the real presence of God often shows up through the real presence of another person who dwells in this rich relationship with Jesus. God shows us how transformation happens. He gets in the pit with us. 
And that's also how transformation happens with one another. We get in the pit with one another. Community, ultimately, it's not just for the sake of knowing and being known by others. But as we are known by others, as we know others, that's how we come to know Christ. And I, I, I want to I make sure we understand, because I agree sometimes when we talk about community, it just stays there and like, all right, now give everyone a big hug and let's just stay here. I think we lose sight of why we have community as well. That God wants us to be that with one another, because by the love we have for one another, the world will know that we are Christ's disciples. That when we start to love and receive and, and carry one another in the ways that we're reading about here, the world starts to look at us, and they might not like our doctrine, they might not like the way you talk about different morals and ethics, but they will see something that is missing in their life, a deep sacrifice of the Father that can be preached on a street corner, but maybe will be seen by the love we have for one another. And I remember in my own life, um, I had a rocky journey there for a while. I was probably about as far away from God as you can imagine, and different things. I don't have to bore you with all the gory details, but God started the work in my life again, but I was still pretty wounded. And I came back to this church in Philadelphia, and I was that guy. I didn't want to be there, but I felt such a strong thing. Okay, I got to be there, but I would go as late as I could. So I would come in sometimes by like the offering time at the end of service, be in the very back. Like it, it slowly started to work, but I, I didn't want to be in that church because I used to think all Christians were holy moly's. Like my friends and I, we had what we call them holy moly's, Jesus freaks, Bible thumpers, whatever. Right? I just thought they were a bunch of fakes, a bunch of hypocrites, a bunch of do-gooders who like look down on everyone because sometimes they did. So I would go to church and I knew, okay, I should probably get to meet some people if I'm going to do this. So I, what I would do, I would stand in the back after service during fellowship time and I gave 10 seconds to people. That's, that was, I, was, I would stand there. I was like, okay, I'll give them 10 seconds. If they say hi to me, maybe I'll stay. And no one would, and I didn't realize until later when I'm not happy, I look mad. Like when, that's why I try to intentionally smile because my wife is like, yo, you look so peeled right now. I'm like, yo, I'm having a great day. She's like, you need to smile, Holmes, because people think you're really mad right now. So I'd be standing there. So of course no one's saying hi to me. So I was like, okay, I guess this whole Jesus thing's not going to work for me. But then I realized um, there was this one couple at that church, a little older than me, and they lived right down the street in West Philadelphia from the church. And I was living in Delaware at the time, uh, commuting back for services. And they said, hey, why don't, you, why don't you start to stay at our house on the weekend so you don't have to drive back and forth? I'm like, yeah, I don't got enough money. To, no, 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 we got extra room. You stay there. And he just started to have me in their home, share burdens. I remember one night, I was, I was actually in their small group. And I, it felt kind of fake to me, right? Small group, not the group, but I just didn't like the idea. Okay, I guess you're going to tell me who I'm supposed to be friends with, and I go meet with them every week. I'm supposed to share my whole heart. Yeah, that's not going to work. So I would go to small group, but I was like, eh. I remember one night, the, the woman, Haley, she actually contacted me during the week, said, hey, we're having a few folks over on Friday night. We're just going to be playing some games, have some dinner. We'd love for you to come by. I'm like, oh, I didn't see that on the small group calendar. Oh, this is not a small group thing. I'm like, well, who's going to be there? She said, just a few random friends. I'm like, really? Okay. So I went there. And I remember it was a turning point for me in that church because for the first time I felt like these people are not just kind to me because they have to be, but they're reaching out. They're involving me in their life. They're loving me. And from that point, I slowly became a leader at the church. I don't know how they know how, I don't think they know how it happened, but God called me into the pastoral ministry. I started going to seminary. I became a pastor at the church, then sent out in these different ways, and now started this church in Baltimore. 
and people, by God's grace, because it's a lot of mistakes on my end, but God is making himself famous and transforming lives, all this multicultural community, all this great stuff. But every year I send a letter to that couple and I tell them, I am so thankful for the way you invested into me. I'm so thankful for the ways you showed me community. Because you need to know, you are probably just thinking, I'm going to be nice to this guy and reach out to this guy that looks a real mess that everyone else is avoiding. But in you doing that now, there has been a trickle-down effect to things that are happening in Baltimore. That's some of your fruit. Your communal love for me, this is some of your fruit. Every person that I'm able to love, I'm sharing what you shared with me. And you need to know that. So when we talk about community, this is not some like fluffy little bunny hold hands. And it's, it's maybe for some of you, but it's way more deeper than that. It's the very love of Christ in a broken, shattered, distrustful, harmful world that we get to shine light through the love we have for one another. Amen? The way we display Christ is doing Christ to one another so that they might know the Christ so that they might know the Christ who gets in the pit with them. Can I ask you to stand with me? We're going to pray. I know it's not, it's, we're not going to pray that long in the, in the morning here, but I do want us to pray. And I'm going to ask us to pray in this way. Uh, and this might feel a little different, maybe for some of you. Um, hopefully not too much. But I'm going to ask you to pray for one another in this way, though. Um, and I'm going to ask just, just to keep things... Um, as simple as possible. Men pray with men and women. You can pray with women. I'm not sexist. Please don't think that. But, I'm, but I'm, the way I'm going to pray you is if you can get as physically close with the person as possible. If you know them, maybe, maybe hug them as you pray. Here's why. Here's why. Um, this is not some like weird. It's, sometimes we do feel very much we're out there on our own. But God, I think, sometimes reminds us he's real through even the hand. Do you know why I love to pray with my hands on people? Because I want them to feel, even if they in their mind can't think God is with them, God is with you right now. God is with you right now because his body's here with you, his hands and his feet. So if you want to grab like one person in the room, maybe, if, if, whether you know them well or not, and as close as you can be with them, pray for them. Pray for them. Even if you don't know fully their needs, pray for them. Pray that they might know these things of God. And let's just cover this room right now. And maybe after that, if you prayed with them, maybe move on to another person. And let's just try to pray with a few people here. Remind them you are not walking this journey alone. We do this together. We glorify Christ through his presence here with one another. So why don't we do that for a little bit here as we continue to pray. Find someone if you can in the room. And maybe some of the leaders can look around if there's someone you want to pray with. If if um, depending on the numbers here, let's just take some time to pray with one another.